is the Healthy Families Podcast. My name is Jenny Hatch, and I am your host. My special guest today is the investigative journalist called Goel from Investigations at Ritual Abuse. And he is my guest today to talk about what we just heard during the court hearing around the David Lee Hamblin case in Utah. Goel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we were just discussing that probably the most exciting development of today was perhaps there's going to be some more arrests. Is that what you heard? Yeah, that's uh, Ryan Peters said that the privilege log that he had turned over to the defense as part of the 11,000 pages and counting worth of discovery in the Hamlin case just for the American court case so that the privilege log might be affected because they're potentially bringing charges against additional defendants. most obvious candidate for that based on the information in the indictment, which talks about a woman um, being present during some of the abuse, would be Roselle Stevenson, formerly Roselle Hamlin, formerly Roselle Anderson. So she was, um, she was so David. She's the most likely case. She was David, David Hamlin's Hamlin's wife, wife and the mother of the victims. Yeah. Allegedly, so the victims. The mother of his first four child victims uh, in his marriage. Um, the two victims in the current cases were children when they were abused by Hamlin as well. Um, so, what we're looking at is a situation where, in the information in the indictments, um, it is alluded to like a female perpetrator being present and participating in the abuse of the victims. And, and in so, the victim statements, she is identified over and over as a perpetrator. Yes. Yes, she fits the mold of a typical female perpetrator. Perpetrators of this type of abuse, child sexual abuse, are overwhelmingly male. Um, you're talking about upwards of 90%. But... When there's a female perpetrator of child sexual abuse, she usually appears in concert with a dominant male personality as an accomplice. Rarely is she ever the lead. Now, that that changes exponentially as you get up into the teenage years, obviously. Um, You have older female perpetrators who are committing statutory rape with pubescent boys. These are boys who have have entered their teenage years, who have secondary sexual characteristics, so on and so forth, they are biologically young men. That cutoff is when you start to see female perpetrators acting alone. But before a boy or a girl gets, you know, pubescence, usually if there's a female perpetrator involved in pedophilia and prepubescent sexual abuse, what you see is that female perpetrator acting in the dominant male personality. That's how this works, according to the academic literature and the studies that have been done on it. And so for Roselle Hamblin, David Lee Hamblin's ex-wife is now married to Ford Stevenson, and is now Roselle Stevenson. She fits that mold to AT. The Hamblin victim statements detail almost daily instances of abuse. Um, the Hamlin children report being forced to perform oral sex on their own mother, Roselle Hamlin, before school in the mornings. And um, the most the most egregious to me was the claim that she medicated her own girls and provided them as prostitutes. She pimped out her own girls as prostitutes for money. Yes, yes they had a thriving child prostitution business if the Hamlin children are to be believed. And IRA has not found a single instance where they've lied or, or been caught in an inconsistency. And we have reviewed the voluminous records and the police reports and all of the victim statements and a lot of other material that we've been able to obtain. And we have not caught them in a lie yet. Um, that is highly unusual. There is no such thing as a perfect victim in a sexual assault case or a sexual abuse case. Um, but I would say that in 22 years of doing this, the Hamlin children, their version of events and the victim statements and the police reports, they are as close to a perfect victim as you can get. 
yeah, which and- makes the failure to prosecute David Lee Hamlin and convict him in 2014 all the more egregious because they did have a taped apology from David Lee Hamlin to one of his daughters for raping her. I think the thing that has impressed me the most with your journalism is the various angles that you come at to solidify the case of the victims. Things like purchase of homes and neighborhoods and friendships and affiliations and public information that other people wouldn't necessarily look at. Like, for example, the recent deep dive you did on the Christiansons, who Suki is the sister of this same David Hamblin, and you're sharing all of this publicly available information that's from newspaper clippings and pointing to things that, you know, other people just wouldn't notice. That's where I think that your type of journalism has been so brilliant in solidifying the victim statements. Well, a lot of that is just born of experience covering this type of case. The two areas that I tend to specialize in are securities fraud cases and sex trafficking, especially over the last four or five private clients that I've dealt with ritual abuse out of Utah. Um, So over that 22 years of experience, there are certain things that you understand would corroborate or discount allegations of sexual abuse or child sexual abuse. And once you start understanding that, you start pulling from those other sources like publicly available um, sources and, and publicly available information that other people who may not have 22 years worth of background in this type of work would not pull from. That's it. So I, I mean, I, I certainly, uh, I don't have that experience. I certainly wouldn't even think to consider to do that. Yeah, I mean, this Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Time, I'll be holding investigative research classes and taking people who, you know, send me their emails for an invite to Zoom through free classes on investigative research because I get a lot of people who, you know, send me tips from other states and other jurisdictions and ask me if I've come across this family or that family um, and whether or not I think that they would be involved in this type of abuse. And I, I said, look, I am almost exclusively focused on the Hamlin case. The only time I deviate from that is if it's a case that overlaps with it, like it has a victim that says someone in the Hamlin group also abused them, but overwhelmingly the case is centered on other named abusers outside of the Hamlin group. Um, I would love to take so that. I focus almost exclusively. Huh? I would love to yeah. take, take oh, your yeah, training. I mean, and, and is it going to be on, you, on Zoom? How are you going to organize the class? It's going to be on Zoom. It's going to be on Zoom, and I've done all the PowerPoints for the first three classes. Great. Um, I will be doing some video content and a textbook of sorts. Um, it'll be sent in like a PDF form to anybody who wants to go along through the classes. But the budget is to have about 15 to 16 classes um, on investigative research techniques. So the people who see something in their community that they think doesn't fit or pass the smell test and apply these investigative research techniques to that to either confirm or, or discount whether or not that person fits the mold of a ritual abuser or a sexual abuser. And so the, the method that I've evolved over 22 years, well, I stick to facts and data and to like known patterns among child sexual abuse offenders. Um, so we're going to be directly referencing the major studies that have been done to give you a profile of what a child sexual abuser looks like, what a perpetrator looks like overwhelmingly based on the data that's out there and the studies that have been done. We're also going to explain what a victim of child sexual abuse looks like and behaves like. We're going to be looking at indicators of abuse among adults who may not have disclosed the abuse. We're going to be looking at it from a standpoint of what the family dynamic is. Because especially in ritual abuse, it is overwhelmingly 
if a child is under six and just regular child sexual abuse, if there is such a thing, um, if the child is six years of age or under, the abuser is typically a family member. As you go up the age groups, um, when you start to get between years of age, that declines to about 23%. Overwhelmingly, children are not abused by strangers. They are abused by family members or someone that they... So 93% of offenders are going to be someone that is either in the family or someone that is known to the family and the survivor. And then you go look at the long-term effects of that abuse. What you're looking for is a history a history of mental illness, a history of suicidal ideation. You're going to see higher than expected rates within families and within sibling groups of cancer. I see people dying in their late 30s, 40s, and 50s of cancer at much higher incidence rates than the general population. Um, Lots of alcoholism. See things. Huh? Lots of alcoholism. What was that? Alcoholism and doping, doping with drugs. Yes, that's the substance abuse. You're going to see that. Um, you're going to see any number of markers that are going to clue you in as to whether or not a family may have had this issue. Um, and you're going to see at least one sibling that has tremendous problems in these areas. Now, the other children, in ritual abuse especially, what they're looking to do is create dissociation in the children. And the children where dissociation takes, they typically become very high-functioning adults. Um, but you also have to understand one of the tragic things about child sexual abuse is that 37% of survivors go on to become perpetrators of this type of abuse as adults. Yeah, and, and I think... As children. Yes. I think that's where you, I do have some compassion for David and Roselle because we know that they probably were treated this exact same way by their own families. In fact, that's directly alleged in the Hamlin victim statements. Um, Rachel Hamlin, Katie Hamlin, Eliza Hamlin, they all say that their parents talk about Robert Hamlin and Gene Hamlin. They talk about uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson and Karma DeYoung Anderson, the grandparents abusing the parents. Yeah. But they were raised in this. In fact, Rachel Hamlin says that it goes back four generations at least. Well, and how, how wonderful that these girls, with their bravery to go to the police and share their their statements, by doing that, they they pull out of they pull out of the network. They become chain breakers for their own children and grandchildren. This is what it takes: is this willingness to call the police, report a crime, go on the record. It is it, these are the steps that lead to healing families. I'm convinced of it. So when Katie Hamlin, like, uh, walked into the Provo Police Department in 2012 and disclosed the abuse committed by her father, that was tremendously brave. Um, the fact that her sisters joined in, and at one point they were wearing, you know, audiovisual surveillance equipment to have conversations with their mother, Roselle, in her home. And they confronted her over this. Yeah, I've listened to those audio and video recordings. They're part of the Provo Police Department's investigation. I actually posted all of those audio and video files on my Dropbox and linked to them from my WordPress and my Substack blogs. So anybody who's interested yeah. in hearing those undercover investigative reports, they're on the Internet freely available for anybody to listen to. Yeah, one of the things that you'll notice if you do listen to them or watch them uh, is that Roselle Hamlin never directly says, I didn't do that. She doesn't say, you're lying. She says, I don't remember doing this. And David was working with some programming, and maybe he programmed me. She doesn't come out and just issue a de facto denial. And if you have experience in this type of work, you know, 
that is a classic sign of guilt. It's like you know if you did or did not molest your own children. You're not confused about that. You know what you did. And you would like if you're innocent, what you're going to do is look at your child and say you are mentally disturbed. There is no way in hell you you can think that I did that because I didn't. I never touched you that way. It wouldn't be I don't remember, maybe David programmed me, blah 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 blah. You would know absolutely and unequivocally that you didn't do that. And so when I was watching that, that really jumped out to me on those on those tapes where they're having conversations with Roselle Hamlet. Uh, I'm just glad they got it on video. There's some wonderful audio recordings directly from police cams around various issues tied to this. The police one time went right into David Hamblin's home where so much of this abuse occurred. And so it's been captured. It's there for anybody who wants to see it. Yeah. And so you, that's the other thing that's unusual about this case is, A, how much material made it out of the grammar request, and also how much of that material was either unredacted or selectively redacted. Because it made things a lot easier in terms of connecting the dots as to who the girls were talking about. Because they had incomplete redactions, they would redact the word uncle, but they would leave the first name. And once you did work on the genealogies of the Hamlin family and the, the families that were mentioned, it was very easy to connect the dots in this case and to start looking at, at public records like criminal records, sex offender registry, so on and so forth, court records on Utah courts or exchange, um, and to find the conviction of Timothy Nathan Tuttle for sexually abusing his adopted daughter. Uh, Timothy Nathan Tuttle was David Lee Hamlin's brother-in-law, the husband of his sister, Cree Tuttle. And so all of these things is just one domino after another that you look at and you say, this tends to make these allegations more credible. And I thought it was uh, interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. I thought it was interesting during the hearing this morning that they said, you know, we need a couple of months to finish out everything. And then they said, but there has been some things posted on the Internet through grandma requests. A grandma request in Utah is like a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. And it was another investigative journalist and I who obtained the documents and I posted all of them on my blog on WordPress at healthyfamilies.life in a post right on the front page titled no more secrets and in that post you have all of the victim statements a downloadable zip file that has everything bundled together and then the link to my dropbox where you can see all of the audio and video reports that we just talked about and they mentioned it during the hearing this morning indicating hey this is out there on the internet people are looking at it so we may not need the full two months uh, we may just need, you know, five or maybe six weeks. So they set a date for September 5th to do the next hearing update, whatever they're planning to do. Is that what you heard? That is what I heard. In, in prior hearings, the concern with the 10,000 pages worth of discovery is that they're going back to the early 2000s and late 90s. And with Peters, what I would say is, you should file a motion to exclude that because it has nothing to do with the current allegations at hand. Those, those materials related to Hamlin's prior case with his daughters it has nothing to do with the two individuals who are currently pursuing charges against him, um, one of whom was his male patient as a young boy. Um, David Hamlin was a therapist before he lost his license for having sexual relationships with his clients and characterizing it as part of their therapy. Um, he also had minor patients in that therapy practice, but he lost his license. And one of those minor patients came forward as an adult to say, David Lee Hamlin molested me. 
female victim, who, as I understand it, is the daughter of one of the families named in the Hamlin victim statements. I know her name. I'm not going to divulge it. Um, I divulged the Hamlin daughter's names because they had already been revealed due to the, the, the grammar release. Their names were pretty much out there in the public domain, so there was no concealing it. But the female victim in whose case is going before Judge Larson and Nancy, um, I will not reveal her name for that reason, but I will say that she was part of the families. She was in one of the families that was named in the Hamlin victim statements as being a family within the LDS Church of Satan. And would you say that this woman is probably the reason why they reopened the case in 2022 last year? Her and the boy, among others. Okay. I mean, if you look at the news reports, you know, the sheriff had over 180, I believe, reports the last time that they most anything. It was between 150 and 180 tips. And this is Mike, Mike Smith. Mike Smith, the former uh, police chief in Pleasant Grove, who's now the Utah County Sheriff. Uh, excuse me. So they've had an ample amount of tips, which is exactly what you would expect given the, the sheer scale of the handle victim statements. When I index those victim statements, I put all of the individuals named in the victim statements in index and put the page numbers next to their names where they appeared. I have five single space pages worth of name perpetrators. I had another page of child victims who had partial names that I was able to identify. Um, I am still to this day putting names to some, completing some of those names of child victims who appear in the Hamlin victim statements. And of course, one of the ways that I approach this that makes me a lot different than other investigative researchers or other investigators is because I understand the family connection, especially for abuse victims who are six years of age or younger, over half of their perpetrators will be a family member. I start by building family trees. That would and then I look in the family for a history of abuse. Um, I look at any sort of public records in terms of like psychiatric or mental health issues or criminal records, so on and so forth, to, to build a score, basically, of whether or not this family could potentially be a family where sexual abuse or ritual abuse has occurred. So I've got a caller who would like to talk to us. Are you willing to stick around for that? I know you've got a lot on your docket for today, but if you're interested, I'd like to bring them on just to have another. Oh, no, it looks like they hung up. Anyway. Okay. Um, at any rate, like you start with the family and then you proceed from the family um, to the friends and associates. So I look at neighborhoods that the family has lived in. I start tearing apart property records for the time period in which they lived in those neighborhoods to determine who their neighbors were. Um, and then, of course, just good old-fashioned detective work, like legwork, where you're locating phone numbers for people in, in those records who may be material witnesses to, see, to call them up and to build a rapport with them and see if they noticed anything. Well, and I noticed they have any relevant information in some of your early reports, you pointed to the fact that these people tend to hang out with the same families to socialize, to go to church, to build businesses and neighborhood connections, to run for local offices in local government, as we're seeing right now with Christensen running for the Provo City Council. They like to be in charge of things. They're in high positions in the church. And they used the Mormon church as cover for their church of Satan tied to the LDS people. And so I thought that was a brilliant thing to point out that their, their circles were small and they tended to live in the same neighborhoods. 
Well, that's something that Rachel Amblin pointed out. She said the CS families would move in to an area where they had an existing presence so that they could safely practice their belief system. Because yeah. if you're surrounded by other families that are also in the, in the process of they're, they're ritually abusing their children as part of the CS, you're not likely to have your neighbor notice anything and report you because they're just as guilty as you are. They're doing the same thing. So in the Terrain Avenue apartment, which they live in in Port Chester, New York, uh, Rachel Hamlin alleged that the landlord of that apartment and the other tenant, I think there were three apartments total, all three tenants were CS. Yeah. And the landlord was the local punisher, the person entrusted with discipline of wayward CS members. They carry out a lot of that discipline against children who weren't complying with their parents' abuse in the basement of that Terrain Avenue apartment. Um, so and they, I looked at that. I looked at the people who lived in that neighborhood around Terrain Avenue and so forth. I looked at the ward and the stakes. And it really becomes a it really becomes apparent that they think of their own children and grandchildren as belonging to the group. Those children exist to provide them with sexual gratification. They think of their children as being um, interchangeable with the other family's children, and so they arrange marriages and they set up relationships where there's very little free will involved in terms of who they can date and hang out with and party with. They're, they're very controlling. Would you agree with that? Well, they're very much concerned with the purity of bloodlines. Yeah, that's so true. So in their, in their belief system, the CS believes that bloodlines have spiritual power. So what they're interested in doing is arranging intermarriage or sexual relationships with other bloodlines to produce greater spiritual power as time goes on. They sexually abuse their children. The methodology that they've evolved is to cause those children to dissociate, to become more callous, to be able to carry out greater and greater levels of sadism in their sexual and physical abuse, um, and eventually to turn these children into adult abusers themselves to carry on the cause of the LDS Church of Satan. So it's not just, you know, you can make the cynical argument that, you know, that's a lot of window dressing for saying, I like to have sex with my kid. And I like to have sex available to me. Um, or you could say, you could take them at their word and say, these people actually do believe this. And their entire methodology is devoted to turning children into adult followers within the LDS Church of Satan. to carry this method forward into the future refine it, make it more efficient, and abuse their children so that the group can perpetuate itself into the future for as long as it takes, because they believe that in the final battle, Lucifer will prevail over Christ, and the people who follow Christ will be their slaves. And they are also very comfortable using their own children to make video and photographic pornography and to earn money for them by prostituting them out to strangers. That became very apparent in the victim statements well, as well. Was, that was David Hamlin's. That was David Hamlin's move. Like allegedly, um, young girl's grandmother Carmody Young and her sisters um, Bell Police and Nola Young were involved in pornographic production uh, as the quote three graces. Um, so it's like hope, faith, and charity. When the Hamlin girls were born, you had Rachel, you had Eliza, and you had Katie, and they were the three graces. And David Lee Hamlin was taking pornographic photos and producing child pornographic material, allegedly with the help of LDS cinematographer and filmmaker Brian Kaepner. Now, there were others who participated in it, either in the performances um, or in helping to produce the material. Um, Craig and Suki Christensen are both named as individuals who participated in it. Conrad Gottfordson, who's a former state president and bishop. Uh, and you've also, also named as, as one of the participants. You've also pointed out that
that with this vast trove of video and photographic pornography, here is more evidence and that it must exist somewhere and that that could be used to help, again, bolster the case of these girls. Yes, because one of the things that I know about pedophiles, especially pedophiles who collect child pornography, is that they don't get rid of their collections. They just amass more and more material over time. So if what the Hamlin girls are saying is true, that material is still out there. And what they talk about is when they're on Temple Square, like in Salt Lake, they had other families who recognized them in that pornography and wanted to come up and take a picture with them. That's the level of depravity that's going on here. They were celebrities in this Mormon subculture due to their child porn films. Wow. So I have and, an, I have another caller. Yeah. Can I take the call? Sure. Brady, I'd like to welcome you to the show. My guest. Alice, what would you like to say? Like... You're live. What would you like to say? Oh. I'm sorry, I was, uh... sorry, I apologize. I can't hear you. Microphone issue, but um, thank you for talking about this. And I was going to ask if these guys were in jail yet. And it sounds like you're actually just now building a case against these dudes. And um, I would totally like to help promote if there's anything we can do to like, is there like something we could, like a package we could use to promote the case and like bring some attention to it? Is that something y'all want to do right now? Well, Goel has done just an amazing job on his own personal substack. He's actually going to hold a starting on this, this Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Time. I'll be holding a class teaching investigative, uh, investigative research techniques. And you're welcome to attend that. All you have to do is drop me a letter at 1830, that's 1830, G-O-E-L, at gmail.com, and I'll send you a link to the Zoom chat, or the Zoom call that I'm going to be holding this class with. Um, I've built three classes worth of PowerPoints. I'm going to be building some class materials in the form of PDFs that you'll be able to use to follow along. Uh, in terms of promoting the case, um, the Goel is, the, the substack is 1830goel.substack.com. We also have links to TikTok, um, Instagram. There's a Rumble. Um, all of that's listed on the substack. You can also get it from me. Uh, you can also get it from me by emailing me at that. Um, Gmail address that I gave out that is 1830 um at gmail.com the Instagram is just 1830goel um, that'll take you to the Instagram the TikTok uh, the TikTok let's see is 1830goel as well um, and it'll have little videos that I've done on TikTok about the case that you'll be able to disseminate. I've covered Gordon Bowen, um, some of Joe Binion, and then, of course, I have three different videos up on Craig Christensen, who's the current candidate for District 1 Provo City Council. I really think his campaign, and, his campaign should be paying you for those ads. Those are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he wants to pay me. I was hoping he wouldn't want to get belligerent and try to like trust me with a defamation case. But you know, Scott, this is an absolute defense to defamation. And if my dream scenario is he would try to get me into court uh, because then I get to depose him and do written interrogatories and also potentially file a countersuit against him. It's not defamation um, if it's the truth. <laughs> yeah also if you're sitting there and saying allegedly which I do repeatedly um, there's no way that he can mount a defamation case I don't say it's you know been definitively proven 
post tag, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and mockery is a close second. And so I've tried to deploy both of those to maximum effect. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, Brady, I've been working on this case for over a year. There is so much here. We could literally have thousands of journalists and activists crowdsourcing this, and we still probably wouldn't really get into it completely because it is such a huge, all-encompassing case that goes over the decades and certain families for generations. And, and God bless those in Utah who are trying, trying to bring these people to justice because they're against this total wall of money and corruption and the media and the courts. And the hearing that was held today gave both of us some hope. So do you want to finish the show, Guel, by just kind of summation of what we heard? It was very short. It couldn't have been more than 10 minutes. What was your main takeaway? Yeah, the basic of a main takeaway is that Ryan Peters came out and said that the privilege logs that had been turned over in discovery might be affected by bringing new charges against additional defendants. Most likely defendant, based on the information and indictment details in both cases, is Roselle Stevenson, formerly David Lee Hamlin's wife, the mother of his children, Eliza, Katie, and Miriam Hamlin. Um, she, the woman who fits her description and the description of Roselle's actions in the Hamlin victim statements from 2012 and 2014, uh, appears in the information and indictment is present in participating in the molestation of those two minor victims, uh, or at least one of those minor victims, I believe it was a boy. And so she's probably going to be the next domino to fall. Uh, they also gave them an additional 45 days on top of the 30 that they plus that they've already had. Um, from the beginning of June when they got their first 10,000 pages worth of discovery. There's another 1,000 pages worth of discovery done, but they will have until September 5th to review it. That is the next status hearing um, in Judge Griffin's court. There's another status hearing that is probably going to get funded uh, in, it's going to be in Nancy before Judge Mandy Larson. I'm going to look that up real quickly. Well, and I can't emphasize enough how important it is to click over to Investigations at Ritual Abuse Substack. This is Goel's site. I put a link in the header of the show. Go ahead and click over there and just read his reports. They are the best, in my humble opinion, they are the best on this whole case. And that includes Adam Herbitz over at Fox News in Utah. He's done some good work, too. But uh, the the breadth and depth that Goal brings to this, nobody nobody's doing this kind of work. So go read his reports, watch his videos. He has a few podcasts. And then I've put a link to my own work. I intensively covered the first six weeks of this story starting last June in 2022. And then I've done piecemeal bits and pieces throughout the year since then, mostly podcasts, but a few reports. And there are others who are contributing mightily to this work, but we're kind of the ones who are the most obvious. And especially since, yeah, so, you know, it's our own personal sub stacks, you know, anybody who wants yeah, so to. So the other things that I would, yeah, anybody can, can follow either one of our sub stacks or both. There's a few things that I want to like mention before we wrap up. The next hearing for uh, Hamlin over WebEx will be on the 9th of August at 10.30 a.m. before Judge Mandy Larson um, in her Mansi courtroom. Um, and this is because there's there's two separate cases, right? There's two separate cases. There's one with a female victim and Mansi, and then there's the male victim, I believe, is an American pork. Um, so that's the next thing. You, you got the 9th of August, and then you got the 5th of September are the next two status hearings in the David Lee Hamlin case. Um, and the other thing I want to say is we will be bringing you a series on a very well-known name, um, within the state of Utah, prominent within real estate development. And you need to look out for that. 
Um, this is something that we've been working on for months. It started with some real estate transactions in LDS or state neighborhoods. Uh, and we found a family that had done some transactions in those neighborhoods, and we started to follow the breadcrumbs from the parties in that family that were doing real estate transactions in those neighborhoods to the wider family. And one of yeah, your one of your name that you would know. One of your points around this is this is the way they sometimes launder money. They'll sell a house to someone in the in the cult for way more than it's worth. And that's a way to give a payoff to help somebody out who needs some fast cash. It's also a way to maintain control of the neighborhood. Right. So we did a series called Reach of the Ronies and the Roney family is the dominant family within New Skin. The multi-level marketing company that sells cosmetic and skincare uh, lines, and what happened was we started looking at all the properties that they were buying in these stakes and wards, like in the Edgemont stakes in Provo and whatnot, and we started finding that they timed a lot of their real estate transactions. It was the same people selling to and from each other over and over again. And it, quite frankly, in my experience, as somebody whose other area of expertise is securities fraud, and that encompasses money laundering operations, it looked a lot like they were washing money through real estate transactions. Um, now, nothing definitively was proven, but we started looking at that. There will be some follow-ups on that as well, related to private jet travel. We have the tail numbers of private jets and, and aircraft associated with these people. And we've been analyzing the flight paths and where they're going with their private aircraft. And there will be some follow-up content on both the Reach of the Ronies and on this new individual who many people will recognize. You see his name everywhere in Utah. And we're going to start dropping some content on him here in the next two to three weeks. Is he somebody mentioned in the victim statements? No. This is somebody entirely new. The Ronies weren't mentioned in the victim statements. But we developed a circumstantial case that they were potentially part of the CS based on their property transactions, their real estate purchases in the neighborhoods that they were in, and also in terms of analyzing their families particularly Negro Roni, who had 13 marriages, um, who had a sexual assault case in her family. Um, her adopted daughter accused her stepfather, Negro Roni's husband, of molesting her. Um, that same stepdaughter was smeared by Nidra and her husband as being present during the sexual assault of one of her siblings at the hands of an older adopted brother. So we were able to, like, the pieces fit to say something isn't right here. You're in these neighborhoods with a documented LDS Church of Satan presence. You have a history of sexual assault and sexual abuse within at least one of the siblings' families. Um, and then you have these extremely odd flight paths just all the wrong areas um, for one of the family's brothers. Well, I look, so I look we, forward to reading that. Never stop digging on that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can read the Reach of the Ronies for our findings on the Rony family thus far. There's going to be some follow up material, but the big one is an as yet unnamed individual that we're going to be dropping a lot of material on. That sounds uh, great. In the next two to three weeks. Brady, do you have any other questions before I close down the show? Or Hakeem, or who else is that? Is that Jade? No, um, the only question I would have is, is there anything, any specific thing that anyone here could do to help you guys out? Definitely gonna check out the Substack. I'm gonna share that. Read. You can share and disseminate it um, to anybody you know um, who may be interested. 
And obviously the TikToks, the Instagrams, everything that we do in terms of content, share it, disseminate with it. But you can subscribe to the, to the IRA website. It's $8 a month or $75 a year. You can contribute more if you want. Uh, but we make it free. And so our subscribers make it possible for us to keep it open instead of hiding it behind a paywall because it does cost a good deal of money to do this. Um, you know, to generate this type of content. And one of the things I, I do is... Money. It also requires a lot of time. My content is all free for a day or so. I, I put it all up there complete free. But then it goes behind the paywall. And my feeling is if somebody wants to read everything on my site, it's $5, which is like the cost of an old-timey magazine. So if you think of what's up there as like reading a magazine, it's a lot of content. But for $5, you get access to everything. And I feel passionate, too, about being paid because I've spent thousands on just this one investigation. <laughs> you and me both, yeah, right? Yeah, tell me about it. Like, yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is if I do work for private clients occasionally. So if you have somebody that you feel needs to be looked into, and, um, you want to receive me for my services, that's another way that I, I make money. Um, it's also another way that I afford to keep doing the Hamlin investigation because it does cost a great deal of money. And most importantly, it costs a great deal of time. And most of what I've done in the Hamlin case is entirely pro bono or out of pocket. Uh, would you say, Goel, that so this is the most, would you say that this is the most solid investigation you've ever done? You just said at the beginning of the show, you have not found anything that puts into question what these girls have said and their victim statements. Have you ever come across a case like this? Well, yeah. I mean, I've come across a case that was pretty open and shut. To be quite honest, it was six months. Um, local police, local law enforcement, county law enforcement were not interested because of who the perpetrators were. Um, but it took six months to develop a packet, to develop the evidence and, and the affidavits, and then to dump it anonymously in the hands of state and federal prosecutors. And, you know, the issue was they had been stonewalled at the local and county level, and that happens way more than people like. That case was more solid because there was just so much direct proof. It wasn't an allegation at all. There was actual physical and video evidence of what had occurred. The challenge that I would say to people who want to kind of strike out on their own and, and do what I do, never under any circumstances except child sexual abuse material, even though it might be evidence, into your own possession. If you do that, you will be guilty of a federal and a state crime. It's a felony. And... You should never take possession of it. You should simply point the people who have possession of it in the direction of law enforcement to turn it over to them. And that's the big cautionary tale. Never, ever take that kind of material, even though it might be proof of a, of a crime, into your own position, into your own possession. Only law enforcement can do that. And so that's the big cautionary thing that I would say to people who may want to you know, start bootstrapping it. Classes is to steer people in the right direction. And that's the big thing I would tell people out there is like, if you know of a crime like this, don't take possession of, of any sort of video or photographic proof. Point the person in possession of it to law enforcement or point law enforcement in the direction of that person. Brady has one. I would say the only problem with that being that if you point law enforcement in the direction of, say, like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, you know, these, all these meta companies that are actively promoting child porn networks, it's like nothing gets done, you know. Um, and yet they're so good at censoring us for my friend got censored for telling her friend that her kid had cool glasses the other day. Like, oh, look at him with his little glasses. That's all she said. 
and she got a, a one-day Facebook ban for that. So she could be censored for complimenting a friend's kid's glasses. Um, you know, why are these networks still allowed to exist? And not only that, but why are they being promoted and amplified on these networks too is my you know thing. I'd love for you guys to help, you know, help me answer that question at some point. I generally don't look at the material. Um, it is, you know, if somebody offers to show it to me, I just generally will not look at it. Um, it is sure, but like, um, it's the, uh, and so what I would tell you is, and, like, uh, having work in content reviewing, the inescapable conclusion that I came to is, they're making money off of it. And traffic is money. So the more users you have, the more money you're going to make on advertising revenue and so on and so forth. There's a sizable portion of people on those social media platforms who are trafficking and trading in child porn and child sexual abuse material. And those companies are indirectly profiting from it, which is why they're not interested in cracking down on it. Exactly, um, exactly. On top of it, the more Machiavellian explanation to you is they are compiling information that can be used to analyze the patterns of behavior among the individuals and the groups that they circulate in. And those patterns, that data immensely valuable to those social media companies in the future and right. to law enforcement. And so they may be able, they may be tolerating it under the guise of developing that data set where they can analyze the patterns of behavior among those individuals and groups who trade in child sexual abuse material. You, that would be nice, but we got to be honest. They've had decades to do that kind of work, and <laughs> they still haven't done shit about it. Are you comfortable sharing the company that you worked for? There was a third-party company that was contracted to work for Google primarily. Interesting. And Listen. I, I did not. So the way that that works, in a lot of cases, you don't work directly for the social media provider. Yeah, it's a third-party thing. They hire outside companies. They hire outside companies. And, you know, I will say this. Like, you had eight-hour shifts. You worked for maybe three to four hours. They had therapists on site. I mean, it was the Rolls Royce of this type of of job. Um, but it was still, I mean, I couldn't envision doing that for longer than I did it. I didn't even do it for three full months. Wow. Like, like it was so unbelievably awful. Yeah. And It, it is difficult doing it, this it work. Really, it is, even somebody like me who who does this work for a living, you know, but what I pour over are police reports. Right. You don't have to see it. Affidavits related. I don't have to see the actual visual. Or hear it. Representation of the abuse. No, and that's the other thing. The, the audio tracks are horrific. Yeah. So it's something that you can't unsee. Right. But you tell yourself, like, at the onset, is like, you tell yourself, you know, I'm already doing this kind of work anyway. I have some expertise, and then my skill set will translate well, and we'll be able to make most in prosecutions. What Brady said is you send notices to these companies about this material. They will not take it down in many cases until you get the FBI and the Department of Justice involved. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't just that Google would take it down. Don't get me wrong. Google would go ham. Uh, if their Gmail accounts and whatnot were being used in this. Any Google product is never a problem. The problem was the people who originated the content. We're talking about companies like MindGeek, which runs Pornhub and a lot of other X-rated sites. If you sent them a notice saying that this is child sexual abuse material, they would ignore you or tell your supervisors to fuck off. Um, they didn't care. And 
they're based in Quebec, Canada. So they felt like they were immune to it because MindGeek is actually hundreds of companies and subsidiaries. And they're headquartered in jurisdictions like Cyprus, which are notoriously difficult to get to move on any sort of criminal prosecution for this type of material. Um, so you're, you're looking at a situation where those companies were actively resistant. Any sort of pornographic site, no matter how much documentation was sent to them, no matter how many notices were sent to them, until it became a thing of like federal law enforcement becoming involved or law enforcement in their country at the federal level becoming involved, they, they wouldn't move. That's interesting. And they, yeah, I mean, because again, traffic is money to these sites. And they were making jobs of revenue hosting illicit or illegal activity on their sites. It wasn't until Nicholas Kristoff of the New York Times and Bill Ackman of Pershing uh, Square Capital Management, who's a hedge funder, got together and publicly pressured Visa and MasterCard to stop accepting payments or processing payments for these sites, that these sites actually started removing the material. Wow. That's the, that's the level. Until you threaten their money, they won't move. And well, I'd, I'd like to point out the fact that they, they are willing to actually... One is money. The other is they're tracking these people and developing data on how they move and how they act. Did you want to say something, Brady? Yeah, I just want to point out that they're very quick to turn off the Visa credit cards and the PayPal accounts of, you know, protesters and truckers and whatnot. Um, but this stuff is like actively being promoted still. Um, and I think it's beyond a financial incentive. Yeah, but like um, I, I'm just kind of like bewildered. I feel like so overwhelmed. The, the situation is like so overwhelming um, and even I, like as brave as I am about talking about certain things, like I'm afraid of talking about this topic sometimes, you know what I mean? Um, uh, I got kicked out of a room just the other day for, um, bringing it up or bringing, talking about something in this topic. I'm not going to go there now, but like, uh, people are coming around though slowly, but surely people are slowly becoming aware of the situation and they're beginning to actually take Pizzagate seriously. And it's taken, uh, I don't know, it's been, what, since 2016 when that happened? So yeah, it's I taken really think the Sound of Freedom movie is helping, and people are just talking more about ch child trafficking. So it's it's definitely yeah, that movie more in the conversation. Is helping, believe it or not. I got to admit that that movie is absolutely aiding, I think, the conversation, because it, at least people now are like, they can't deny the fact that, okay, yeah, ha this stuff really happens, you know? Because yeah. for the longest time, it was like, none of this is happening. Or you'd be attacked if you talked about it. Hey, guys, I need to run. But thank you both so much for showing up, especially you, Goal. I'm so impressed with all of the work you do every day. Do you have any final words? Uh, just keep kicking. And, you know, I, I'll see you guys on Thursday if you want. Yes. You can email me at 1830goel at substack.com or investigations at ritual abuse at 1830goel.substack.com. Uh, 1830goel again. What yeah, Gmail is the email. What time are you going to do it on Thursday? Thursday night at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, Central Time. I have the first three classes written. Um, it's about. It's 59 slides over three classes. So right. I may try to take everybody straight through the first three classes um, to get them into it. And then we'll be doing a class a week I hope every you, Thursday from that point forward. I hope you record it. Then you could just offer it. Oh, I am going to record it and, and post it on the Rumble. Yeah, you can offer it as a tutorial. That's awesome. Well, thank you again yeah, so, so much. Is, there's a channel on it. Uh, called Investigations and Ritual Abuse. And it has a lot, it has the other two classes that I've already done um, prior to this up on there as well. Great. Well, again, thanks for helping my show on a busy day, and we will talk again.